0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's
2: the truth would be better served if we substituted for this dismissive phrase conspiracy theory, the phrase low nut theorist. I mean, we're supposed to believe that JFK was assassinated by a lone nut. We're supposed to believe that MLK was assassinated by a lone nut. We're supposed to believe that uh, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated by a lone nut. Uh, and we're supposed to believe that the anthrax attacks were committed by a lone nut. And it's, it's pure, unadulterated disinformation. And that's very easy to see in the case of the anthrax attacks.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Barry Kissin... Today's show, the anthrax attacks and the system that perpetrated them. Barry Kisson is an attorney and lifelong peace activist. In 1981, he moved to Frederick, Maryland, home of Fort Detrick, the U.S. Army Medical Command, home to the U.S. Army's Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, U.S. AMRID, and until 1969, the Center for the United States' Biological Weapons Program. Barry Kisson has written important and definitive articles specifically addressing the U.S. biowarfare military-industrial intelligence complex and the weaponization of anthrax. His latest is a 22-page memorandum to Congressman Rush Holt of New Jersey, the truth about the anthrax attacks and its cover-up. Barry Kisson writes a weekly op-ed column for the Frederick News Post. Today we discuss the anthrax attacks of September 2001 and the perpetrators. Amerithrax, the FBI's investigation into the anthrax attacks and its cover-up of these events. Government-sponsored bioweapons research in private military contractor laboratories and the new biowarfare arms race. Barry Kissin, welcome.
2: Bonnie, thank you for inviting me to the show.
0: You are a passionate opponent of the new biological arms race, and you've written a memorandum to Congressman Rush Holt of New Jersey, The Truth About the Anthrax Attacks and Its Cover-Up. What is the truth in your view?
2: The problem is this, isn't it? I mean, this is a fundamental problem. We Americans are so frightened, we don't know we're frightened. We don't, we don't even dare, out of fear, think outside the box. So you can stick something right in front of us that is so obvious if you have any objectivity whatsoever, and we don't understand it. We won't let ourselves understand it. You know, this is, this is every, every sort of pivotal point, and there's so many pivotal points. They all tell the story. They all tell the story, Bonnie. All you have to do is deconstruct one of them, and you see the system at work. It's a fundamental concept that I'd I'd like for people to understand better. We have a system. It holds itself together. It operates in all these different spheres out of the same influence and with the same methods. And, and, and And we see it over and over again, and we tell ourselves about it, and we don't confront it at all. We manage not to confront it at all. Now, you and I, I think, during this program, are about deconstructing the anthrax attacks. It's a great one to deconstruct because the whole story is right there. Um, one of the things you see in the anthrax attacks is you see terribly revealing facts that nobody wants to deal with. Now, let me tell you what the, what the terribly revealing facts are in anthrax attacks. First of all, you've got a weapon. What do we mean by a weapon? In this case, we are talking about, when we look at the anthrax in the letters to the senators, we are talking about a weapon that consists of pure spores, the likes of the purity of which have never been seen before. We're talking about one trillion spores in a gram. Does everybody know what a gram is? These letters only had two grams of this stuff. That's all these letters contained was about two grams of this stuff. And that's enough. You put that in a ventilation system, everybody, everybody comes down with inhalational anthrax. And if they don't get the antidote, I mean fast. They're dead. This stuff also has an additive called silicon. The purpose of the additive is to make these spores very dispersible. So that when they open up Dashiell's letter in the Hart office building, it comes out of the envelope, mark my words, like a gas. They shut down the Hart Senate office building because of this one exposure. And that stuff inadvertently coming out of an envelope, they shut down the office building for three months. It cost millions of dollars to disinfect that place. This is a very sophisticated, very advanced weapon, the likes of which had never before been seen. And everybody knows where it came from. It came from our program. Of course it did. And the American people and all the commentators, and certainly all the people involved, can look at this weapon and scratch their heads and say, I wonder who could have done this. And then, of course, the other thing that goes on is the FBI very studiously does its very best, certainly for the last six years of the investigation, to mislead as best they can about the quality of this stuff. Because the fall guy they end up choosing, everybody knows, can't do this. He doesn't have the equipment. He doesn't have the expertise. He's never seen anything like it. When they opened up the dashel letter at Fort Detrick U. Marilyn Thompson tells the story in her book, The Killer Strain. A scientist named John Zell opens up the envelope. I I think he probably was in BSL-3. I'm not positive. This is the first thing that occurs to him when he sees this stuff behave the way it does. I mean, I'm talking about defy gravity. The first thing that goes to his head is, I am not protected against this. I've never seen anything like this. You know the wonderful chapter of the killer strain ends with John Azell going up to a sink and preparing a bleach mixture and snorting it, and then and then for that matter, Richard Preston's book, the Demon in the Freezer, you know, picks it up from there. The, the, the other scientists you saw to look in this stuff. I mean, it it bounces it it bounces off of tape. Okay, it bounces off of tape. That's how dispersible this stuff is, and they expect all of us to believe that this vaccinal o- immunologist named Bruce Ivins did the anthrax letters, supposedly weaponized them. You know, in, in, in these sort of you know the twenty hours or so that he possibly could have had uh, le- leading up to the mailing of these letters in, in, in the lab, and he wants to believe this on the basis that. He's the custodian of the anthrax strain that finds its way into the letters. That's that's the That's the whole case against Ivans. That he's the custodian of this particular strain of anthrax that finds its way into the letters. And what we have to ignore is where he sent the stuff. And he sent it to our up until then secret. Anthrax weaponization Projects, and we know where they are, and we know who is involved. And and anybody, anybody looking at this with any objectivity knows who did the Anthrax Letters. The Anthrax Letters came out of our own, remember, we're talking about officially acknowledged inside job, our own so-called biodefense program. That's where it came from. That's where this technology is being developed, that the FBI has so clumsily attempted to conceal. It took us seven years to get them to say, in response to a demand from Congress, what the percentage weight of silicon was in the anthrax. It took them seven years to reveal that. You can imagine what they did for seven years. Lied. <laughs> Said, well, we don't have that information, and you know, that's not so easy to determine, and all this silliness. And, and and one of the remarkable things, I'll, I'll continue to tell the story as follows. One of the remarkable things is that just in the last two months, the Wall Street Journal—I don't know if I don't know if they realized what they were publishing—but they put a fifteen hundred word op-ed in the January twenty-four Wall Street Journal, and this is what it says. First of all, it says what I've already referred to, which is that the FBI, Department of Justice, have been stonewalling on the presence of silicon in the attack anthrax for seven years. It says it. And then it says, this is what we finally know. This is of such a high percentage of silicon that it had to have been deliberately added for the purpose of increasing, enhancing dispersibility. That's what this op-ed says. Now, what it doesn't take the additional step of doing is saying, okay, who can do this technology? I mean, that's, that's the only thing that's missing from that op-ed. Who does this technology? A month later, February 24, New York Times, an article about how Dugway scientists have been occupied with trying to re-engineer, that is, reproduce, the the attack anthrax and what they say in this journal that has been quoted in this letter at the New York Times is that this is very very high military grade requires super specialized equipment etc that's that's now mainstream and wouldn't you know it i've got i've got to recount this i hope I've, i'm not uh, asking too much of your, your your listeners to follow this but listen to this almost It was like within days, we suddenly see the following. The House Select Intelligence Committee passes an amendment, I think probably was unanimous, that says that Amerithrax needs to be reopened. That is, the FBI-DOJ investigation needs to be reopened. The entire country knows that. And then it adds, for the purpose of looking for Possible foreign involvement. That's what it says. I, I write a column for the local newspaper. I refer to the amendment which was introduced by my congressman here in Frederick, Congressman Roscoe Bartlett. I refer to it as an Orwellian amendment. And I was just at the point that everybody is beginning to realize what the deal here is namely, that this came out of our own anthrax weaponization projects. The Congress is suddenly going to reckon with the absurdity of the Milatrax up until now, and devote us to looking for the foreign culprits. Let me remind everybody of something. They tried that at the beginning. Remember, you know how did the letters read? Death to America. Death to uh, Israel. Praise Allah. They, they also fill in, by the way, um, this is anthrax, take penicillin. You know, this inside job, you have to understand, its purpose is not to kill a whole lot of people. You know, the, the envelopes, the envelopes addressed to the senators, they were sealed with tape. Okay, so these are the kind of precautions that were taken. I mean, this was basically meant to generate fear. Generate fear and, and to further incriminate, to the extent possible, Muslim terrorists. Hence the language in the letters. Hence... A concerted campaign that Glenn Greenwald of Salon.com has been very focused on. A concerted campaign on the part of ABC News, with a whole lot of help from insiders, to pretend for months on end that this anthrax contained the additive bentonite, which is characteristic of the Iraqi anthrax program when it existed more than, uh, call it 10 years before. And this was based on a complete fraud, complete fraud, and and definitely figured into the run-up to the Iraqi war. So, what are we describing here? When we deconstruct this, we're describing a system at work. And you know, President Eisenhower gave us you know one phrase that we we might sort of apply to to naming this system. He referred to the military-industrial complex. Well, this is yeah, this is military, this is industrial, this is heavy-duty intelligence, and. They're pursuing a bioweapons program regardless. They're committed to that regardless. It doesn't matter which administration it, it, it is. It doesn't matter what's going on in the realm of arms control. You know, that's where they are. And, and yes, uh, in 2001, what they saw fit to do was to send some of this super grade anthrax, put them together with some, some Muslim, uh, terrorist sounding letters and, and, uh, pretend that, um, this sequel to 9-11 was another reason for, uh, inaugurating the global war on terror. Uh, it also, at the same time, by design, uh, stimulated a tremendous uh, increase in uh, so-called biodefense spending, which is now being spent, as we speak, on a program that has absolutely unmistakable bio-offense components. No question. I mean, they've, they've actually described it as that. They have said publicly on the front page of the Washington Post included, that they are making bioweapons in this new program whose pretext is the anthrax attacks. They are making bioweapons. They'll tell you that. They'll justify it on the basis of the need for anticipating possible, uh, possible uh, biodefense mechanisms. You know? In other words, we've got to create the weapon in order to figure out what vaccine might be useful against it, you know, what antidote might work after infection. And, of course, uh, as so many commentators gingerly point out, um, any country watching this views it as an express violation of the Bioweapons Arms Control Treaty. No one, no one from outside looking at this uh, has any doubt that we are engaging in bioweapons research. No doubt about it.
0: I'm speaking with attorney and peace activist Barry Kissin. Today's show, the anthrax attacks and the system that perpetrated them. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. On February 19, 2010, the Associated Press reported, Case closed. FBI says scientist was anthrax killer. And the scientist referred to was immunologist Bruce Ivins of Fort Detrick, who was listed as a suicide in 2008. So the anthrax investigation is over, and a lone nut did it, according to the FBI. Wasn't Bruce Ivins actually helping the FBI to solve the case?
2: Yes, yes. Bruce was definitely involved in that. Uh, that that's very clear. Um, right at the beginning, they, they focused on on uh, Fort Detrick. There's certainly expertise there and... and um, and knowledge about these matters. And, uh, yes, Bruce was one of the scientists that they consulted uh, in in the process of trying to figure out uh, what was at work here.
0: Well, now, who was Bruce Ivins?
2: Bruce Ivins is a scientist, an immunologist, actually. I mean, his career is built around uh, designing vaccines. Um, And he was 30 years at uh, at Fort Detrick. I'll use the acronym USAMRID. USAMRID refers to the Army biodefense facility at Fort Detrick. And that has been the chief facility ever since we terminated, or supposedly terminated, I should say, our offensive biowarfare program, which would have been back in 1969. So, Bruce Ivins has been there for, for a very, very long time, uh, and he's very respected. And, and, and the other thing that this community, that the community that I live in, namely Frederick, understand Frederick is the home of Fort Detrick. This community knows Bruce Ivins. I didn't personally know Bruce Ivins, but I know a lot of people who do know Bruce Ivins, and, and they all understand. This was a gentle, uh, gentle, helpful, decent, very decent very decent human being. Did he have some uh, psychological problems? Yes. They, without a doubt, were terribly exacerbated by the way he was treated for years by the FBI and the DOJ. So we certainly here don't have any, we know, including all the people working at USAMRID, that Bruce Ivins had nothing to do with the anthrax letters. And this closing in February that you were just talking about, the February 2010 closing, I mean, it's, Uh, It's like a circus. I mean, it makes no sense at all. I mean, why are they closing it right now? I I have a theory. Before I present the theory as to why they're closing it right now, uh, let let me point out that leading into uh, this rather sudden closing um, are articles in in the mainstream that are finally blowing the cover off the FBI's attempt to pretend that the attack anthrax was nothing extraordinary. We've got the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal both giving ample space to the plain fact that this stuff was weaponized with an extremely advanced technology. First it was the Wall Street Journal article, then the New York Times article, and a few days later they're suddenly closing the case. I mean, let's remember one thing that's pointed out by a lot of commentators. They just hired the National Academy of Sciences a few months ago to uh, do a review of the science that went into the investigation of the anthrax attacks. The report by the National Academy of Sciences isn't due to come out until early summer. I mean, it, it's a mess is what it is. It's a terrible mess. It is not difficult to pick up the veil and see that the case against Ivans is absurd. We shouldn't even be spending any more time on taking it apart. It's absurd. It doesn't hold up for a second. And we need to start occupying ourselves with marshalling the facts that we do know and then figuring out what this was. We already know. It's officially acknowledged. It's been officially acknowledged practically ever since it happened. This is an inside job. It came from within our own program. And it was not done by a lone nut. How ridiculous. I, I have a weekly column in, in, uh, in Frederick. I now have a weekly column. I, I write a column for the Frederick News Post. And, and as I said in a recent column the truth would be better served if we substituted for this dismissive phrase conspiracy theory the phrase lone nut theorist. I mean, we're we're supposed to believe that JFK was assassinated by a lone nut. We're supposed to believe that MLK was assassinated by a lone nut. We're supposed to believe that uh, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated by a lone nut. Uh, And we're supposed to believe that the anthrax attacks were committed by a lone nut. And it's it's pure, unadulterated disinformation, and that's very easy to see in the case of the anthrax attacks.
0: Wasn't Bruce Ivins working with wet anthrax as opposed to dry anthrax powder?
2: Ab- absolutely, Bonnie, and that's and that's a fundamental point here. His career—that's what he does. He works with a slurry,
1: and, and and he
2: uses the slurry in his in his vaccine experiments. So the FBI. If you confront them directly and say, "Well, what piece of equipment are you saying at Samory, could possibly have dried this stuff?" and and when that question is posed directly, the FBI avoids and says, "Well, we don't know, and it could have been, and we're not sure, and all this." But what they'll put out through their uh, through their media shills is that he had a lyophilizer. The only problem is this lyophilizer that that Bruce Ivins had at his disposal would have taken a year to dry that much anthrax without anybody knowing.
0: What was the significance of Bruce Ivins' flask, RMR-1029?
2: Okay, this is it. Practically all of the so-called wonderful science that underlies a uh, analyzes the genetic makeup of the attack anthrax. And what they find in this laborious process that takes years and years is that this particular anthrax, they not, they not only determine that it's aim strain, which is, well, it's, it's been our strain. That's our strain. That's our, that's our bioweapon strain, aim strain. But they not only figure out that it's aim strain. That was pretty easy. They also, you know, with this very advanced, you know, technique, um, discover four, they call them, uh, markers, four genetic markers, otherwise referred to as morphotypes. And and they say this is totally unique to this particular anthrax. And if we can find uh, anthrax with the same morphotypes, you know, that's obviously connected. All right? So they analyze RMR 1029 and they tell us RMR 1029 has the same four morphotypes. The attack anthrax must have come from RMR 1029. Who made RMR 1029? Answer Bruce Ivins. Who is the custodian? Answer Bruce Ivins. Bruce Ivins made RMR 1029. In 1997, we have the record of all the different uh, places that he sent RMR-1029. When you ask the FBI DOJ how they eliminated as suspects all of the other people that had access to RMR-1029, there is no answer. There never has been an answer. There still is no answer. I mean, they make vague reference to polygraph tests. One problem with that is that Bruce Ivins passed two polygraph tests. But what we have here is we have a cover-up. The, the very higher ups in DOJ and FBI following a script that's dictated by powers that are more powerful than they are, and the purpose of the, the purpose of the script is is to hide where everybody by now should know this stuff came from. That's that's the purpose of the script. And it's been done very clumsily and very transparently.
0: Well, let me ask you a, a clarification on RMR 1029. Uh, that was in Bruce Ivins' uh, possession, and then he sent on to other labs. Now, what form was RMR 1029 in? That was a liquid form, wasn't correct. it? Correct, correct. Well, now, the anthrax attacks on Congress and the media was a dry form, wasn't it?
2: Well, not just a dry form, Bonnie, it's in the form of a very sophisticated, technologically advanced weapon. It's not just dry, it's extremely dispersible. That means when you open up the envelope in Senator Daschle's office and a very little bit escapes, it escapes like a gas, like a gas. It shuts down the Hart office building. For three months, they spent millions disinfecting the hard office building from a mere opening up of an envelope.
0: Well, now what I'm trying to get at here is: Did Bruce Ivins ever have in his possession a dry anthrax?
2: No. Yeah, well, no, no, no. Bruce Ivins would have had no no call for that. I mean, one of the reasons the answer to that is no is this: You don't mess around with this stuff unless you absolutely have to. So if you're doing you know, animal tests or whatever, you're not messing around with this stuff. It's too, it's too difficult to manage. I mean, you need very, very high biocontainment, extremely high degree of precaution when you're dealing with something like this. But the other point to make is that this technology that manifests, especially in the anthrax that was in the letters addressed to the senators, is technology that no one officially acknowledge existed. I mean, it was unknown up until that time. That's how sophisticated this was. And, and this, has, this has nothing to do with Bruce Ivins. In fact, I've got to cite this as a perfect example of just how silly this is. The FBI gave a science briefing uh, on August 18, 2008, a few weeks after Bruce Ivins died. And the, the head guy, Majidi, his name is... Um, gets up there and says in an answer to a direct question about, well, isn't it important how this stuff was processed? He actually answers, no, 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 that's not the important thing. The important thing is that the genetic identity was identical. I mean, he actually said that. He actually said that. And, and in fact, a significant part of the story is all these journalists from these most uh, prestigious science journals sat there, and, I mean, just let him, let him do it. Didn't even confront him. You know. I mean and, and by then of course everybody should know if they don't. This stuff is extremely, extremely weaponized. That that this technology doesn't happen except in secret programs in the United States with this strain.
0: I'm speaking with attorney and peace activist Barry Kisson. Today's show, The Anthrax Attacks and the System That Perpetrated Them. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now to clarify for everyone, could you describe the weaponization of anthrax and the difference between the pre-1969 technology and the current technology? Because that gets to the heart of the science briefing where the cover-up takes place, doesn't it?
2: Well briefing I was just referring to as the FBI science briefing. It happened shortly after Ivan's died. It's intended to satisfy everybody that uh, there's scientific proof of Ivan's guilt. I mean, it's, I mean, it's pure fabrication. I mean, it's, it's silly. I mean, it's clumsy on its face. I mean, when you read it, I mean, even if you didn't have any background at all, even if you were frightened of science, it is so obvious that these guys are clowns contradicting themselves, changing the story. You know, and and self-transparently maintaining one line throughout, which is there's nothing special about this anthrax, which is what they have to hammer home in order for anybody to believe for a second that Bruce Ivins possibly could have had anything to do with making this stuff. So that's what they do in the science briefing. They literally say, they say, there is no silicon that was added to this anthrax for the purpose of weaponizing it. There is none. And the way we know that. They said, is because when we put this stuff under the electron microscope, uh, we didn't see any silica on the outside of what's called the exosporium of the anthrax spore. So, therefore, you know, there's no weaponization with silicon going on. Well, I know some of the people that are sitting there, and I know doggone well they know better. But that technology is obsolete. That's a pre 1969 technology. That technology goes back to when we had, officially had a bio-offense program. That's the program that Nixon terminated in 1969. That's what immediately gave rise to the International Arms Control Treaty for Bioweapons. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow human beings, our only hope in relation to the technology that is being developed in bioweapons is effective arms control. And what's going on right now is that the only world superpower is choosing, unmistakably, couldn't be more obvious, arms race over arms control. We have gone to Geneva and said, in no uncertain terms, it was recently uh, confirmed by the Obama administration, we are not interested in international inspections and verification. We we don't want to do that. We, we have basically single-handedly scuttled the attempt on the part of the rest of the world to make this arms control meaningful. Everybody knows, we've taken this position plenty of times in different, in different realms of arms control, that you don't have uh, sufficient rigor in an arms control treaty unless you have inspections. That's been our own position. And we are at the point now where the Obama administration has said in no uncertain terms, that will never be possible. That's what it says. And and, and its basis for saying that is that the technology is such that there is no way to enforce a treaty. There is no way to inspect effectively. That's the position we're taking. And, and folks, I've got to tell you that if that prevails, this this could be the weapon of mass destruction that does the job. This could be the one. Now, with nuclear weapons, which we don't have sufficient control over, but with nuclear weapons, it's very clear as to where they came from and who uh, deserves to be retaliated against. You don't have that with bioweapons. And these bioweapons they're developing, the anthrax attacks give you a, a smattering of an idea. I just alluded to the technology. You open up an envelope, less than half a gram escapes, it contaminates. Has anybody ever been to the hard Office building? It's huge. It's six floors. It's huge. It takes up a square block. They shut it down for three months. This stuff dispersed like you cannot imagine. Now, this is what else is going on. We're, we're genetically engineering the stuff. We're genetically engineering it. That's what this new program is doing by its own admission. What are we talking about? Let me be clear. We are talking about genetically engineering germs so that they respond neither to vaccine or cure. We are talking about species-threatening germs. That's what we're talking about. I'm reminded when I think about this. I'm reminded of what Albert Einstein said. He said, this is a paraphrase, he said, this destructive technology so far outstrips our humanity, that it is our undoing. I mean, of course, he was, he was talking about the nuclear technology, but it, it so clearly applies to what we're looking at in the realm of bioweapons. And the whole damn thing is being driven by two goals, profit and power. That's the story told by the anthrax attacks, transparently. That's the story that reveals the nature of our system that nobody wants to acknowledge, but everybody knows.
0: Well, now, Barry, back to this technology. What is the current technology to weaponize anthrax spores as opposed to the old technology?
2: Well, okay, Um, one aspect of it has to do with how the silicon is added to the spores. But the pre-'69 technology, as I mentioned already, puts silica on the outside of what's called the exosporium of the anthrax spore. What, what we have now, thanks to our weaponization projects, is we have a technology that places the, it's actually what they refer to as a polyglass. It's a a silicon compound, and they refer to it as polyglass. And that places the polyglass, not on the outside of the exosporium, but underneath the exosporium in what's called the spore coat. And there's no question about what the uh, potency is of the technology that I just referred to. There's no question about it, because because we we had a chance to observe the behavior of this stuff. I've I've referred now a couple of times to um, the contamination of the hard office building. The other thing that that needs to be cited to give people an idea of what I mean by dispersibility, Um, the postal workers, the two postal workers who died, they they, they were working at the Brentwood Postal Facility in Washington, D.C. The two of them that died, died as a result of Envelopes that were sealed with tape, allowing to escape through the pores of the paper, sufficient anthrax spores to kill by inhalational anthrax. That's what this stuff does. The other, the other two people besides Bob Stevens in Florida, who was the first one, but the other two people, the elderly woman in Connecticut and the nurse in, in New York, the only, the only theory as to how those two died. Is the only possible theory is that somewhere other spores got out of an anthrax letter and contaminated a letter that ended up in their mailbox. That's that's how dispersible this stuff is. I mean, to the point where whatever was on the envelope addressed to the nurse in New York was enough to kill her.
0: What were the Joint Judiciary Committee Amerithrax Oversight Hearings of September two thousand and eight?
2: Well, um, this is, a, you know, about a month and a half after Bruce Ivins dies and the FBI dramatically announces that without a doubt, without a doubt, I mean, that's without a doubt, you know, this is beyond, beyond reasonable doubt. This is like without a doubt, uh, responsible for the anti letters. So, so here we are, um, I guess it's a month and a half later, and, and already, already, I mean, it's, it's obvious to everybody that. There's something very fishy going on here, and and so I went to those hearings. I I don't live far from Washington D.C., and I attended both hearings. and And they were largely very disappointing because uh, we we don't have people like um, William Fulbright anymore. Remember William Fulbright? I mean, remember William Fulbright's hearings on Vietnam? I mean, those people on William Fulbright's committee knew how to ask a question and knew how to follow up when the answer didn't make any sense. We don't have that anymore. That's, that kind of colloquy doesn't even happen. Uh, there were a couple of meaningful questions asked, uh, and, and uh, given, given how few they were, it is remarkable, but in keeping with what we're dealing with, that the FBI uh, doesn't manage to answer them whatsoever. Now, there are two questions that uh, are later put into writing, and after months go by, the FBI finally answers. Uh, and there are two central aspects of the, of the truth. I mean, the two, two things that reveal the truth rather directly. The first thing is the question about, okay, tell us, for crying out loud, what is the percentage weight of silicon in the attack anthrax? I mean, we've only been asking for seven years, uh, and, and the FBI finally comes up with a figure. Um, there's reason to believe it's a low ball, but it's plenty high enough to establish what everybody by now should realize, which is that um, this stuff was deliberately added uh, as a part of an extremely advanced technology uh, uh, to enhance uh, dispersibility. Um, that's, that's, that's what the um, answer from the FBI that took them seven years to, to give us uh, directly reveals. Now, the other question that doesn't quite get as much attention, although it gets a lot of attention from me, is the question that goes, well, wait a second, this RMR-1029 uh, anthrax that you say uh, is Bruce Ivins' responsibility, um, given the fact that this stuff was sent by order, uh, was sent, the same stuff was sent to, um, the, Battelle and Dugway, which are the places where the, um, uh, weaponization programs are taking place. They are the places, obviously, the places in the country where this stuff can be processed the way the attack anthrax was processed. The question now from the, from the congressman happened to be Nadler is, okay, tell us, how do you exclude the people at Dugway and Battelle how did you exclude the people at Dugway and Battelle from being suspects? And seven months go by, and, and the answer to that one is, it's not a lowball, it's it's uh, an absurdity. I mean, I, I, I could read it to you if I went to the computer, but basically what it says is, uh, we eliminated people at Dugway and Battelle, they don't use the names, they never say the names, they never say the names, but we eliminated the two facilities uh, based on our determination that they never got RMR-1029. Well, I mean, everybody knows that RMR-1029 was sent to Battelle and Dugway. I mean, we have the record that was kept by Bruce Ivins from 1997 when he created the stuff, uh, all the way into 2004, when the uh, original 1,000 milliliters was exhausted, and we have the record. And we know that on various occasions, including in the spring and summer of 2001, this stuff is being sent to the weaponization projects. It's as transparent as it could be, frankly. And and the the most shocking thing is that, is the conformity of mass media. Unbelievably shocking.
0: Now, we know that Bruce Ivins sent RMR 1029 to two facilities.
2: He sent it to some universities. And, and 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 yes, I mean, theoretically, the FBI looked there as well, and, and so forth. There's a number of other places in the records to where it was sent, not that many, but some. The, the one, though, that, that never gets acknowledged, they don't talk about it very much, but, but what's being covered up, the, one that, the words they never say are Dougway and Patel. That, that's what they're, you know, because again, Bonnie, it goes to some other places, but Battelle and Dugway are the places where the weaponization projects are. That's the place where this cutting-edge technology that goes into the attack anthrax um, is, is formulated.
0: Right. Well, now, what is the Dugway proving grounds in the Utah desert?
2: Well, I'll put it this way. In 1943, we started our biowarfare program. Okay? 1943, in the middle of World War II, we were, we were working with, uh, with England on it. We started in 1943, and it started at Fort Detrick, It was then called Camp Detrick. Okay. Uh, ten years later, uh, we open up the facility called Dugway Proving Ground. Dugway Proving Ground, mark my words, is larger than the state of Rhode Island. And that's where a lot of the production of the bioweapons is going on, and that's where a lot of the experiments are going on. And it's surrounded by desert. It's, it's actually only 80 miles from Salt Lake City. But um, it's been sort of, you know, absolutely instrumental uh, in both biological and chemical warfare uh, programs since, it's right around 1953.
0: Then what is the Battelle Memorial Institute of Columbus, Ohio?
2: The Battelle Memorial Institute of, of Columbus, Ohio is the largest private R and D corporation in the world. I mean, it's it's kind of remarkable because Patel is 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 under the radar. You don't hear many references to Patel unless you've you know unless you've taken an interest in anthrax attacks so forth. Uh, but they've been the intelligence agencies' managers and operators of their bio labs for many years, and in fact, a, a key part of the story here, um, particularly when you're taking a step back and looking at how the system works, is that it is the same corporation or subsidiary, they still call themselves Battelle, that is getting the contracts to manage and operate the new labs that are being built, whose pretext is the anthrax tax. That's, that's what I would suggest to your listeners, is classic military-industrial maneuver. Um, you, you create the threat so as to create the demand for your product.
0: And Battelle is a privately owned uh, military contractor, right? Correct. Now, isn't it also true that Battelle itself was in charge of the labs, not only at Battelle but also at Dugway?
2: Correct. Absolutely right, Bonnie. Um, Battelle is contracted by the Army uh, and the Defense Intelligence Agency. Okay, who's actually running running that show? Probably. Um, um, to manage and operate the bio-labs at Dugway, uh, conducting, among other things, the up-until-then secret anthrax weaponization projects. It's all to tell.
0: I'm speaking with attorney and peace activist Barry Kisson. Today's show, the anthrax attacks and the system that perpetrated them. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, uh... Barry, you have written a memorandum to Congressman Holt of New Jersey, the state where the anthrax letters were mailed, entitled The Truth About the Anthrax Attacks and Its Cover-Up. Now, you cover a lot of territory in that memorandum. What was the main purpose of your memo, and and what is uh, Congressman Holt's involvement?
2: Well, Congressman Holt, for the longest time, has been the lone congressional voice saying the first thing about how erroneous this all is. I mean, uh, and and the way way he kind of interjects himself is both on the basis you mentioned, that is, that the anthrax letters were mailed from his district, uh, but also because he's a physicist, he's a scientist. Now, uh, Holt introduced... Uh, legislation that would, um, provide for a reopening of the, uh, Ameritax investigation, uh, under the control of Congress. And, it, it, it's remarkable, I think, that, uh, you know, we have 535 people in Congress, 535, 100 senators, 435 representatives, and only one in the face of what practically amounted to universal rejection or the FBI case, only one stands up and says this needs to be uh, investigated by someone else. Only one. Now, um, that argument can't be resisted, like I say. I mean, it's, it's it's in touch with what all the commentators are saying, practically. The mass media, the mass media will certainly go along to the extent that you can, but they also they also reveal things, and, and what the, one of the things that the, that the memo points out is that Uh, The way I kind of um, um, describe this is, at first, it's completely out in the open. This is before I I submit, the cover-up goes into effect, so that you've got the mainstream media, like Washington Post, New York Times, uh, I I have a piece in that memo, a quote from uh, Miami Herald, um, and... Baltimore Sun, also. Baltimore Sun, actually, uh, has a, a very significant article. They're, they're essentially saying the same thing, and that is that when when uh, scientists who prefer to remain anonymous... But, I mean, come on, these are the guys that are talking to the mass media now. When they're, when they're asked about, you know, what, what's going on here, they basically say, look, this is the stuff that's made by Battelle and Dugway. That's what they're saying. And, and, in fact, you even have... Officials in the FBI at that point early on saying, uh, this is, uh, this is the most important lead we have, you know, we're going to pursue it. Um, something that I, that I also quote in the memo, um, is something, um, that I didn't find on the internet. I actually had to call Columbus, Ohio to get a copy. But, um, Columbus, Ohio, where Patel is, right, has a newspaper. And I, I discovered that they had written this story. And in that story, this is December 21, 2001. You know, this is right in the middle of everybody saying what the deal is. We've got FBI Director Robert Mueller assuring
1: Neocon
2: Senator Michael DeLine of Ohio that there are no suspects at Patel. (laughs) That's on December 21, 2001. That's what the article says. Robert Mueller says, you don't have anything to worry about. We're not looking there that's not, and, and all of that is, of course, is, and, and it's nothing new. It's, it's, uh, you know, you got the FBI almost kind of naively, you know, walking up to the door of a secret CIA anthrax weaponization project. And in the hand goes up and says, you're not crossing that line. And they just turn around and look elsewhere. That's all. I mean, that's, that's the
0: deal. Now, did the FBI change its initial story? The investigation of, of, uh, of the anthrax attacks was flipped. I mean, in the beginning of the investigation, wasn't there an admission that this was weaponized anthrax and then that all went away? Yes, exactly.
2: That's exactly what I I was trying to just say. I mean, the first few months after anthrax attacks, October, November, December, I put some some of the articles in my memo. The first few months, it's very plain. I mean, this stuff was, this stuff was processed as a weapon, and there's only, there's only certain places that can do this. And, and we know it's an Amer- American strain, and, and we know it's domestic, and, and so. And then, and then the names repeatedly are, are there. They're right there. Baltimore Sun, New York Times, Washington Post, Miami Herald, Doug Lane the I mean, it's right there.
0: Right. Now, with regard to Battelle Memorial Institute, there were certain projects that they were in charge of and running. Now, one of them was called Project Clear Vision, and they were doing this specifically for the CIA. Now, didn't this have something to do with weapon systems to deliver germs?
2: Yes. I mean, it, it's the design of uh, what they call a bomblet, a, bomblet. a CIA bomblet that... Um that distributes, um, bioweapon. That's, that's what we see on the surface. Now, um, and, and that's what puts Project Clear Vision, uh, in the category of, of Anthrax Weaponization Project. Um, but I don't think there's any reason to believe that we're seeing all of what Project Clear Vision was about. Uh, there are two other projects that have come to light, uh, in fact, exposed rather uh, significantly, on September 4, 2001, in the New York Times, which leads up to a book uh, by the name of Germs written by the New York Times um, science editor William Broad, in which uh, two other projects are described, one named Project Jefferson, which is, which is a nasty one. I mean, that's the one where uh, they are genetically engineering anthrax in order to increase resistance to vaccine and cure. That's, and, and they have, you know, they have an excuse. I mean, something about how the Russians had this before us and we need to figure out and all this. Um, so this is now after the Cold War. So, um, and so that's Project Jefferson. And then there's another, another name that we come across is Project Bacchus. Uh, that on the surface, uh, involves experimenting with setting up, uh, a bioweapons factory to see how easy it is and so forth. I, I, I believe they built something in the, um, in the desert of Nevada, uh, and we're told that they were only using a, an anthrax simulant um, rather than anthrax itself. That's what we're told. Um, and so.
0: And then, with regard to Project Clear Vision, didn't they name it Clear Vision because this project was supposed to have something to do with seeing into the future?
2: Yeah, I mean, the campaign is, is justified and characterized uh, on the basis of uh, this is about. Peering into what the future could hold in the realm of bioweapons, we're going to we're going to um, you know use all of our expertise and 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 very significant resources to create to determine and create. I mean, you have to create it to create the most advanced bioweapon we can envision.
0: So then, it is true, is it not, that the weaponized anthrax that was uh, used to attack Congress and the media had to have originated at either the Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah or Battelle Memorial Institute in Ohio? But in both cases, at Dugway and at Battelle, it was Battelle that was running the labs.
2: Yes. Yes. I mean, let, let's look. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll say it this way. Okay, I, I think all of the evidence points in that direction. Okay, that's that's my answer to that question. You know, can I can I state it with certainty? No. I mean, is it possible that uh, there, there's some facility we don't know about that's you know that, that carries this off? Yes, it's possible. Okay, but but let me make this point, Bonnie. Listen, what gives this away from the point of view of what we really need to understand about it is something rather familiar. Uh, because it is often the cover-up that reveals who's involved. You see, what you have to realize is, is this: whether the most powerful uh, forces in, if you want to, in the intelligence, military, industrial realm, whether they are actually the initiators or not. And it seems, it seems to me there's a very good chance that they are. I mean, it makes most no sense that they would be. Whether or not they are, they ultimately bless what happened. They certainly know what happened. And, and they bless it by ordering a cover-up on the part of the FBI, DOJ. That, that, gives, it, that gives it away. You know, you, all you have to do is look at the cover-up and realize that um, all kinds of machinations and convolutions are being engaged here by our top law enforcement officials, uh, for the purpose of uh, covering up the, the source of these anthrax texts. And, and you've got to say to yourself, who has that kind of power? Who has the power to control that? And why would they do it? And why would they do it? Again, either they did it themselves, which I think is most likely, or they're seeing fit to cover up what uh, an ally of theirs saw fit to do. Fair enough?
0: Yes, fair enough. Now, when you say they, are you referring to the FBI or... Uh... Uh, no, I'm
2: not. I'm not, actually. Uh, I mean, I, it's hard to draw distinct lines, but, but no, I'm, I'm describing an authority of, with more power than the FBI-DOJ that compels the DOJ-FBI to engage in this, you know, in this silly Bruce Ivins case for the purpose of covering up, um, covering up uh, you know, military-industrial-intelligence... Um, uh, well, crime
0: Right, crime. and then, and then what is this power That is more powerful than the DOJ and the FBI?
2: Well <laughs> I, um, I, I, I would, well, okay <laughs> uh, My answer to that is Is um, I mean, there's a lot of different ways of answering it But let me try this uh, Let's start off with the concept of plutocracy Shall we? Uh, what is the concept of plutocracy? It's, it's that you've got, you've got a government that is controlled and operates on behalf of the most wealthy. That's not a new thing. That's, that's par for the course. And, and, um, and these, the, the plutocrats that control American society, uh, one of their very biggest businesses, if you will, is uh, engaging in the manufacture of both weapons and war. Okay? Am I starting to describe who these people are? Um, you know, what you can, you can look at if you pull up the veil is you can see these guys going from military to intelligence agency to industry, back to military, back to intelligence agency. Sometimes they even pop up, you know, in, in, in the vice president's chair. And, um, and, yeah, they're, they're, they order the FBI and the DOJ around, no problem. You can't analyze anything that's going on in the world if you don't understand what its context is. And we have a context, an unmistakable context here, that has to do with the practice of empire. Uh, and and um, manufacturing wars and weapons is a critical part of it, and it has been for a very long period of time. And we need to bring to bear an understanding of this uh, when, when we analyze anything that's going on.
0: Barry Kissin, thank you very much. Thank you, here?
1: Yeah, yeah. What it is There's a man with a gun over there.
0: I've been speaking with Barry Kisson. Today's show has been the anthrax attacks and the system that perpetrated them. Barry Kissen is an attorney and a lifelong peace activist. He has written important and definitive articles specifically addressing the U.S. biowarfare military-industrial intelligence complex and the weaponization of anthrax. Today we discussed his 22-page memorandum to Congressman Rush Holt of New Jersey, The Truth About the Anthrax Attacks and Its Cover-Up, which can be located by googling Barry Kisson. He writes a weekly op-ed column for the Frederick News Post, the latest of which is Amerithrax Dialogue. An interview with Barry Kissin inside America's Biological Warfare Center is available at opednews.com. Barry Kissin can be contacted by email at barrykissin at gmail.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-I-S-S-I-N at gmail.com. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at BLFaulkner at Yahoo.com. That's BLFAULKNER at Yahoo.com. Or call 510 848 6767, extension 628.
1: Hey, yo! Evolution of the mind if you see Stone for peace, give thanks, live life, and release You dig me?